valuable. But it's been neat for me to do it during this season of time as we, we come into Thanksgiving to be able to preach on the goodness of God as we come now to Christmas and to speak on the love of God, the theme of the love of God. Any time of year is really a good time to talk about the love of God, but especially right now at Christmas. I think if anyone is honest, as they were to speak on and try to think through and understand the love of God, they would realize just how inadequate they really are to do that. I know even in my own study and now thinking how to to sort of give a, a, a short challenge here on Christmas to the love of God, just recognizing that there's no way to really scratch the surface of it even. And in the end, we're kind of really just called to sit and to bask in the truth, in the glory of being the objects of God's love. I'm really just going to look at John 3:16, a few observations from it this morning, but like all of God's attributes, as we've gone through this study, God's love, like each attribute, is eternal, is infinite, is perfect. It, it, it goes in perfect concert with his other attributes. If you remember, as we talked about the simplicity of God, that he is not made up of parts, but that in his holiness, it is loving holiness. And in his eternality, it is loving eternality. He doesn't set aside one for the other. He doesn't treat us one way than another, but he has all of his attributes perfectly at all times. In his aseity, we remember the love of God, that there is nothing outside of God that compels or demands his love. Love does not originate outside of God, but it originates within himself because indeed he is love. And so we may understand it differently and the love of God is, is talked about differently in different ways and at different times, but he is always unchangingly loving. But that doesn't make it static, just a flat sort of love. We still enjoy it relationally. We understand it. We experience it as creatures in time and in space in different ways. God is perfect in his love to us rooted within himself. Really, as we talk about the love of God, it, I hope we hear it this morning with the, the scene of the incarnate Christ, the babe in the manger, really at the forefront as we talk about the love of God. That God loves in different ways, but really the ultimate example of his truest and purest love is that self-sacrificing love in sending his son. It is a love that is not externally based on any sort of, of attraction. It is a love that is not based in feeling. It does not ebb and flow. It does not rise and fall. It does not grow over time. It is a perfect, complete, pure love. And it is demonstrated to us ultimately in the giving of the Son. In the giving of Jesus Christ for us. Isaiah 9-6. The prophecy is made for to us a child is born. 
and to us a son is given. John 3.16 then takes that, lets us know that prophecy has been fulfilled for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just a couple simple observations here. For God so loved the world. We hit that object. What is the object of God's love? It is the world. It's meant in John, I think, that when we hear that, it's to be a bit staggering. It should cause us to sort of stop in our tracks and think, how can this be? What, what kind of love is this? Sometimes I think we miss the point and that w- there can be a debate on, okay, what exactly does he mean by the world? And there's other things in the background that we're either trying to prove or defend, whatever it might be. But I think as you were to take as scriptures basically speak about the world, and especially as John speaks about the world, It's not so much a numerical or a quantitative idea. It's not as if he's thinking how many people there are, and so it's, I love this person, this person, this. It's not so much quantitative as if to talk about the immensity or the greatness or the vastness of his love. Now that is indeed true. As we said, God God is spirit, and as spirit, he is infinite. That is, he fills every inch of his galaxy, every inch of his creation. And that means every inch of his creation is filled with perpetual and perfect love. So yes, it is vast, and it is beyond measure. But when he says he, he loves the world, it's not thinking quantitatively. When John talks about world, it's more of an ethical idea or a moral idea if you would so that the world is the mass of humanity those made in God's image the mass of humanity who has rejected God it is as you would think maybe Psalm 2 those who look at God and they rage against him and they look to cast off his binds that they don't want him to be their God He is not going to be as he describes himself. He is not their king. And so they look to to throw off God as creator king, as the one who has claim on their lives. And so it is a world that looks at God and rejects him and says, you are not God. You, You are not our king. You will not tell me what to do. In fact, we'll create some sort of God after our own image that we like better. I think this is the idea of world that John is talking about. So it includes everybody across every spectrum in this sort of mass of humanity. And so he provides a couple examples for us. That in John 3 then you see that he comes and he comes to talk to this important person, a Jewish religious leader, a ruler in the area, an educated Pharisee in Nicodemus. As he talks to Nicodemus, it quickly you understand when he's speaking to Nicodemus, the problem is in Nicodemus and the answer is outside. The solution is outside of Nicodemus and namely it is Jesus himself who in his love can give new birth. 
And then you just move a few verses over and you're in chapter 4 and you have Jesus now interacting with the Samaritan woman. And here you have this lady from Samaria who is irreligious and immoral and has all of these issues. And as she speaks to, with Jesus at the well, she seems to be kind of dodging questions and Jesus gets to the heart of it and quickly says, here's the problem. The problem is in you. The solution is outside of you, namely in Jesus Christ. The one who in his love can satisfy you eternally with living water. The whole of humanity, it it cuts across man, woman, religious, irreligious, Jew, Gentile, across class, across any of that. Into the idea of the mass of humanity that rejects God. Or as John would say, the mass of humanity that is condemned. Here's a few verses just to sort of see how John speaks about the world, the cosmos, simple. John 1, 9, you remember the prologue there, the beginning of John. is John gives the Christmas story differently than the other gospels, which kind of speak of, you know, the, the cradle or the, the manger and the, the, the whole scene of the nativity and not John, he goes in sort of a mountaintop theological explanation. And in John 1, 9, the word Jesus comes into the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. It did not know him. It did not want him. John three nineteen, right in this context, the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light. In John 7, Jesus testifies that what the world does is evil. John 14, Jesus draws a distinction between what he is offering and what the world is offering. When he offers peace, it is real, eternal, lasting peace. The peace, the the promise of the world that it offers is a farce. It's It's a counterfeit peace and happiness. It's an illusion. John 15, as he would speak to those who would follow after him, Jesus would say, if the world hates you, you should expect that because the world hates me. Again and again through John, he he establishes this idea that the world is those who reject God, those who try to cast him off, those who have been caught in the fall. Because of this, the world stands condemned. Now here's where, to really understand, I think, the beauty of Christ in the manger, we need to understand that that we are part of that mass of humanity. We like to think of ourselves, like this little group, or us individually, we're the ones who, like, you know, of course we're much more lovable (laughs) than the world. We don't, Jesus came to save us because, you know, who wouldn't want to save us? And then there's the world. And we can kind of remove ourselves from the idea of the darkness and the world. And yet, John doesn't let us do that. G.K. Chesterton, uh, English writer back in the early 20th century, you probably heard this famous little story, but there was a newspaper that was having people, it was around Christmas time actually, and they were having people write in with an article, and they were, the people would write in, the, the article was, what is wrong with the world? And so apparently the newspaper was receiving, you know, all kinds of long 
soliloquies about what is wrong with the world and everyone had their opinion and putting it out there as we come to Christmas time, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton writes in, his essay was one sentence long. It says, quote, in response to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That he recognized his part in this mass of humanity that stands condemned. John develops it for us a little bit more. Why, why are, do people stand condemned? We see in John 3.17, he sent the Son not to save, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But why do we stand condemned? There's really three reasons that rise out of the text. One is we are condemned already. We are condemned already. You look at Romans 3, you look at at Ephesians 2, and you see the idea built in there, the truth built in there, that we are born in transgression and sin. That we are born dead in our sin. That, that, That we are corrupt, that we are born enemies of God. It's developed as people who stand because of Adam because of his sin, because he has represented us in the fall, we inherit that corruption because he is our representative and then us because of our own actual sin. And so we are born in need of a Savior. We are born sinners. So we're condemned already. Secondly, people are condemned because of unbelief. You look at John 3, I think it's in verse 18. Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in me is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We lack belief. We, we simply just don't believe it. Or at least it's not a belief that lays hold of our hearts, that grips our heart in any way. That's why every Sunday when we pray and we confess sin, we ask God to grant us faith, grant us repentance, give us hearts that believe. Really at the root of all sin is this sin of unbelief, that we believe the lies of the devil, that that what the world offers is, is more pleasurable and more satisfying and better for us than what God offers. It's rooted in unbelief. It's, it's why it's such a privilege to be able to gather and to, to look at the word and to understand it. Why when we preach, we, we work hard to, to get it right. We, we, we want to do our best, that, that you would understand it. And then what goes forward, that's such a privilege and a blessing for each of us. And yet at the same time, it's a huge responsibility that you're hearing truth and you will be accountable for believing that truth. They are condemned because they are condemned already. We are condemned because we're condemned already because of unbelief. And thirdly, because we love darkness rather than light. Men love darkness rather than light. Sometimes it's just that simple. They find it more satisfying. They, They believe the promises of the world. They run to the darkness and not to the light. 
Satan wants to take Christians and to put them in two, I think, two different temptations that fall on us. And one is that when we hear this sort of characterization of the world, we hear about the seriousness of sin, that we look at ourselves and we kind of, you know, just whitewash things. That That's not us. We're not part of that. We're pretty good. We're very savable. We're nice people. We're, whatever it might be, we look at our sin and think it's not that big of a deal. And, and we kind of just play down our own need for a savior. If, if we're okay, if we're uh, fighting, not fighting against, uh, against darkness and evil, and we kind of whitewash it. We don't really see our need for a savior. But we need to understand that when Christ came for us, when the, the Son came in his humiliation, when, when he took on that first stage of his humiliation, his incarnation, he took on flesh, he was doing it for you and for me because we were sinners, because we needed a Savior. Because we were condemned already, because we were in darkness. So that's the first thing I think that Satan likes to use is that we don't take it seriously. We don't see ourselves in that category of the sinful or we go to the other extreme and we see kind of the ugliness of our sin. We just think there's no way there's a God who could love us because of the way we've lived, because some of the things we've done, because we know our own hearts. There's no way a God could forgive us, could accept us, could love us. <clears throat> and yet, the greatest gift was given for us. The most imaginable gift of love was given for us. That Jesus did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. That we would not fall into that trap of thinking that there is no way that God can save us. And so we, we, we have to avoid this idea that we're, we're not that bad, we're okay. And we need to avoid this over here that we look and we just get so engrossed in our sin. And we just live in this sort of pity and, and remorse that there's no way God could save us. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I'll just quote. A sermon he preached on Matthew, he says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. He says, O ye sinners, I mean you real sinners, not you who call yourselves by that name simply because you are told that is what you are, but you who, feel, who really feel yourselves to be guilty before God. Here is good news for you. Oh, you self-condemned sinners who feel that if you are ever to get salvation, Jesus must bring it to you and be the beginning and the end of it. I pray you to rejoice in this dear, this precious, this blessed name, for Jesus has come to save you, even you. Go to him as sinners. Call him Jesus and say to him, Oh, Lord Jesus, be Jesus to me. Save me, for I need this salvation. Doubt not that he will fulfill his own name and exhibit his saving power in you. The gift of Jesus Christ in the manger is not just for the good and the lovely. He came to save sinners because he loved the world. The Jew, the Gentile, across every spectrum. 
He will draw people unto himself and he will save them. And they are all sinners who come. Listen to a Martin Luther. It says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sin and try to bring me into the heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died to save sinners." As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not on mine lie all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And now we see just briefly the gift of love that the Father gives is his only begotten Son. We recognize the darkness of the world, the depravity of the world, the condemnation of the world, that none of us, you, me, none of us were worthy. None of us loved God in order to instigate his love to us. He loved us first. He was the first mover. The greatest act of love is that he gave his son to unlovely, unlovely, undeserving people, each and every one of us. And then we see the greatness of that gift. Indeed, he gave us a son, not a bull, not a ram, not a goat, not something to be sacrificed, but his son. When you think of love in the scripture, sort of the truest, purest form of love is inner Trinitarian love. It's just a fancy way of saying the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father and the Spirit, and the way that they love one another. John begins that way in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Eternal, perfect fellowship and harmony between the Father and the Son. Perfect love that existed there. Fully, all that they need, fully satisfied in themselves. He didn't create the world because he felt like he needed people to love him. You hear that sometimes. He he was perfect and content, satisfied in who he was. And so you see this eternal, perfect fellowship and communion and love. And then in the midst of that, he sends his son, who he's enjoyed that perfect fellowship, into the world, into the darkness, to people who were undeserving and unloving, in order that he might invite you and me and draw us and bring us into that loving fellowship. So John 17, the high priestly prayer is all about. That we would share in that love. You think of the immensity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that baby in the manger, who has enjoyed perfect eternal fellowship with the Father and now is sent into the world that in his humanity will become a curse for us. And part of that curse is to be forsaken by God. 
And that in his humanity, he experiences the forsakenness of the curse. John is full of statements about the Father's love for the Son. I won't go through them all. John 5, 20, 14, 31. John chapter 17, 23 to 24. I'll read that one. It says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. When you understand this perfect love of God the Father, of God the Son, and then you understand the the love shown in the self-sacrifice of giving, not sparing his own son, but freely giving him up for us all, people who did not deserve him, you begin to see just the immensity of the love poured out on Christmas morning in Jesus Christ in the manger. The sending of the Son is love because of this, that it indeed is God's Son. As we said, not a bull, not a goat. You think of Genesis 22 and the ram that was, that was provided so that Abraham did not have to offer his own son Isaac. Not so God offering his son. So it was costly. But in that costly sacrifice, it opens for us makes possible for us to have eternal life, to enjoy the presence of God. And on the cross, Christ secures everything necessary for us to enjoy that eternal life. Because the way that we experience this eternal life, we find this forgiveness, is simply by believing on the Son. It's not by working, it's by faith alone. Or you could say it differently. The sending of the Son is love because it was deeply costly for God, infinitely beneficial to us, and absolutely free. The love of God. You could describe it in a lot of ways. We experience it. But we see it really uniquely in the babe in the manger. Pastorally, I want to challenge you to to think deeply and often about the last two attributes we've talked about, the goodness of God and the love of God. When, especially when things are going well, when you're experiencing blessings, that you let those truths get rooted deeply in your heart and your life. Because there will be moments that come along in your life where it doesn't feel good. And just to say God is good in that moment, it's going to feel shallow. There will be times in your life when you are battling sin and you will feel there is no way that God can love me right now. Where you're experiencing severe hardship and you think this cannot be from the hand of a loving God. And you need to have it ingrained in your heart and in your mind day after day, especially when things are going well and things are just going through the motions. 
so that when the storms arise, you're rooted deeply. Because if you're wishy-washy and you haven't thought much and you haven't praised God for his goodness and his love, when things get hard, there's going to be no roots there. So let me encourage you to review and think through the goodness of God, to think through the love of God. Don't just blow through another Christmas and forgive the cliche, but forget the reason for the season. Think about the love displayed to a world that had rejected God in giving his son. And that son in his humiliation and then in his exaltation accomplished everything that the father had set forward in order to secure a people for himself. God is good, true goodness. God is love, deep, costly love. We need to review that and believe it and rejoice in it now so that it, it, it remains that anchor when things seem difficult. Remember, the sending of the Son is love because it was deeply costly for God, infinitely beneficial to us, and absolutely free. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you for the Son, the gift of Christ in a manger for 